I was on a retreat at a monastery a couple of summers ago, a Christian monastery. We Christians have those, if you didn't know. It was a monastery up in Indiana, and during my stay there, I had a handful of meetings for spiritual direction with a Benedictine monk who was aptly named Father Noel. And I was sharing with him one afternoon that I had been catching glimpses that things were happening in my life that I felt like were freighted with more meaning than what just ordinary events seemed to be. I felt like I was kind of seeing behind the curtain in certain moments that God was actually, he had a hand and stuff that was taking place and that there was some meaning and, and things that I was seeing and that I even had some dreams that seemed to be a little bit too like clear cut and biblical to just be, you know, whatever like brain salad dreams normally are. And as I was telling Father Noel all this, he was just smiling and nodding and he was like, of course, of course, uh, God gave you that dream. And of course, that thing that you thought might mean something did mean something. And yeah, all that stuff that, you, that you're seeing that you think, where you, that makes you think, man, something's going on here. Of course, there's always so much more going on around us. God is always doing so much more in everything. He was like, even in this moment right now, as we're having this conversation, there, there are, the Lord is doing things and, and like angels are doing things that we can't actually see. Like God is active in everything that happens. So much more is going on than what we see or hear or comprehend in every moment. But there are times, Father Noel said, that what's unseen and unheard does break through the surface of our senses just enough that we catch glimpses and we manage to overhear just enough to realize that God's hand is always constantly at work in our lives. And what Father Noel meant when he said that was not just that there's reasons for everything that happens that we don't understand right now. He didn't just mean that this moment is leading to an outcome that God is orchestrating that fits into a larger plan. I think that what he was saying included those things maybe, but what he meant was that the world that we apprehend with our senses and our words is not the whole world that God has made. The world that we can apprehend with our senses and our words is not the whole world that God has made. He meant that creation includes much that is usually opaque and not evident to us. It includes angels and fallen angels. It is saturated with the Holy Spirit, breathed unendingly by Christ into our lungs. And so, yes, Father Noel said, there's always so much more going on than what's obvious to us. But most days, none of it is obvious which is why I'm so grateful for these readings in this, the second week of Advent. Because in our readings, we get a glimpse of a kind of multifaceted correspondence between what we see, what we can see, and what is obvious to us, and, and that so much more that is always actually going on beyond what we see. Tonight, our two respective passages of Scripture I think you could just about overlay them on top of one another and recognize them to be occurring somewhat simultaneously in time and also out of time. Tonight, our two respective passages of Scripture give us, on the one hand, eyes to see a cosmic heavenly warfare 
And on the other hand, ears to hear earthly voices. Voices exchanged amid a seemingly modest earthly gathering. In our first reading from the Apocalypse of John, or from its, you know, its more common name, the Book of Revelation, this first reading from the Apocalypse of John portrays a nativity scene. But it's a nativity scene that's very different than the one that we're used to. We're used to a nativity scene that's pretty easy to fit on a postcard or in your front lawn. We're used to seeing the moment of Jesus' birth actually not be the moment of birth, first of all. It's like after Jesus is all the way born and all that mess has been cleaned up. And it's portrayed in a barn with a manger and farm animals nearby. But our reading from Revelation makes us see Jesus' birth as if, first of all, it was still in progress and also as if it's happening in heaven. Here, what we're used to seeing as a serene, peaceful moment is portrayed instead as a no-holds-barred cosmic moment of warfare. Here, the gently lowing domestic beasts of our usual nativity scene all are replaced by a dragon waiting with its jaws outstretched to devour the baby Jesus at the moment he emerges from Mary's womb. We read, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. Picture this in your mind, if you're not already. So that when she bore her child, he might devour it. That's a pretty shocking visual. I can't help but think of like any number of portrayals of childbirth on like uh, whatever television show or in whatever movie Typically, gratefully, they're portrayed from the vantage point, like behind the mother's head. So you see like mom's head and then like legs and or feet here up in the air in the stirrups. And, and then there's like, and then you can see the, the, bespectacled, the bespectacled doctor in scrubs with like a, a face mask, like waiting to catch the baby. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You've seen those scenes. But here, instead of that doctor in scrubs and latex gloves, there's a giant horrifying maw of a monster that seems more at home in the Game of Thrones than in Sunday school. <laughs> Try putting that on a greeting card. Like that picture. On a, I want that greeting card. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> As with any child delivery, this one is a great physical ordeal. So that amid the flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, we also hear the voice of a pregnant woman crying out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth. But in this delivery, Mary's cries of agony echo and ramify into the recesses of the furthest extremity of human history. These birth pangs correspond with our most distant past. The sound of Mary's voice crying out in the labor of childbirth in Revelation 11, it echoes all the way back to the moment of an ancient deception accomplished by an ancient serpent, the devil, Satan. That deception and Adam and Eve's assent to that deception resulted, among other things, in that very agony of childbirth we're hearing in the sound of Mary's cries. But there's something radically new about this pregnancy. This woman is a new Eve, this woman has offered her womb, her flesh, her entire life 
in complete trusting obedience to God so that now fallen human agony is beginning to be invaded by God himself. Damaged human pregnancy is becoming a vehicle for healing. The implication of the vision in Revelation 11 is pretty clear. When Jesus is born, Satan is already beginning to lose. At the end of our reading from John's Apocalypse, after a prolonged war in heaven, Satan is decisively defeated and he and his angels are thrown down to earth. The very next thing that happens is that John hears a loud voice in heaven. And here's what that voice John hears says. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. I'm going to come back to this a little bit later, but for right now, I just want to flag for us that whatever else it means, whatever else Advent means, whatever else it means that Christ is coming to earth, it means that we are set free from the accuser. Advent means we are set free from the accuser. The arrival of the Messiah means that we are liberated from accusation before God. But here on earth, it usually doesn't seem like anything near that spectacular as what we read in Revelation is going on. In fact, in our gospel passage from Luke, we read simply, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Far from the bewildering cosmic apocalyptic warfare of Revelation, at most, this would appear to be the story of nothing more than just a couple of nice ladies getting together for coffee. But actually, as Father Noel would say, there's so much more going on here. All of that horrifying, suspense-filled, cosmic heavenly warfare is actually at play in these couple of seemingly ordinary pregnant ladies hanging out. The so much more, the unseen and unheard and invisible reality of what God is up to it ruptures to the surface of our senses in the sounds of Elizabeth and Mary's voices. So we read that the, at the moment that Elizabeth hears Mary, that she is filled with the Holy Spirit and she exclaims in a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth's voice is an uncontrolled eruption of joy. In this moment, the Holy Spirit overflows the bounds of whatever controlled, stayed, pre-planned piety we church people are used to. This lady is excited and it's because the Holy Spirit is moving in her in response to Mary's greeting. 
Elizabeth isn't just overjoyed, she's grateful and she's humbled. She has this happy sense of unworthiness that she gets to be with Mary. So she says, why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? All of this is catalyzed in Elizabeth by nothing more than the physical presence of Mary and the Holy Spirit reacting to that presence. It's the sound of Mary's voice that sets all of this off. Mary, in turn, responds to Elizabeth as if on cue by erupting into the song that Christians have now been singing for two millennia, a song we call the Magnificat. We just got the first couple of lines from that song, but that's what she's doing here. In sum, there's a correspondence between the sights and sounds in our reading from Revelation and the sights and sounds in our reading from the Gospel of Luke, even though one of them doesn't look nearly as impressive as the other. To put it briefly, ordinary as their gathering may seem, Mary and Elizabeth actually are participants in the cosmic drama that's unfolding in the book of Revelation. To move toward finding ourselves addressed by these two readings, I want to reflect as we kind of are listening to these voices in both these passages, I want to reflect on the voices that are regularly filling our ears. Do the predominant voices in our lives sound like the voices we hear in these two Advent readings? Do we hear voices like Mary's voice as she cries out in birth pains and in the agony of giving birth? Does our life follow a pattern of self-offering, trusting obedience that Mary exemplifies in her response, which you may remember in the passage that comes right before this one, to God's invitation to become the mother of Jesus. Do we wake up each morning and say, with our words and with our actions, let it be to me according to your word. If we do, then we will probably have occasion to hear something that may sound like the agony of someone giving birth, but that is ultimately leading toward something that is very life-giving. Do we hear loud heavenly voices rejoicing at the overflow, at the overthrow of the dragon? We have opportunities to catch snatches of what the heavenly host is singing and saying. In fact, every time we celebrate communion, we say that we're, as we lift up our voices, that we're joining a worship service that's going on all the time in heaven. And if that thought isn't sort of far out enough for you, what difference might it make if we recognized that that heavenly host, who, whose voices we're joining with our voices, that some of the song that they're singing is this song from Revelation where they're praising God that Satan has been cast down from heaven. Do we hear voices of greeting like Elizabeth and Mary's voices of greeting? Voices that bless one another. Voices that recognize and are humbled and grateful for the presence of Christ in one another. Are our voices resonant with the overflowing abundance of the Holy Spirit? Does the Holy Spirit stir our speech? Do our voices magnify the Lord? How often is the speech that passes our lips 
a full-throated exaltation of soul and spirit that serves no other purpose but to magnify God. Do we cherish the sound of one another's greeting? Do we realize how much more is going on in the gift of one another's presence and one another's words? So much more than what meets the eye and the ear. Luke is our best New Testament biographer of the church. He does a a more robust job than any author in the New Testament of narrating the story of giving us a biblical theological vision of not just of Jesus, but of the church that Jesus founds. His gospel that we just read from is volume one of two. Volume one is roughly the story of Jesus, and Luke's volume two is pretty much the story of Jesus's church. But actually, even here at the very beginning of volume one, Luke is already giving us Easter eggs for the sequel. There's nothing less at stake in the sound of Mary's greeting than the body of Christ. The gathering between Elizabeth and Mary is the first emergence of what will be the church. By the way, there's a great argument for women in in ministerial leadership right there. But anyway, this is the first emergence of what will be the church. Elizabeth and Mary's meeting in Luke 1, it loops, not loops, it leaps, leaps luminously off the page of of Luke's gospel as the first brilliant lightning flash of a mighty storm that's gathering, for now just off on the horizon of the scriptural narrative, but destined finally to roll powerfully over every corner of the whole earth. These two women are telling the story of the church. These two women are telling our story. All of us Christians are like pregnant ladies. In Advent, we remember that it's not just Elizabeth and Mary who are miraculously with child. One of them with the very Son of God and the other with the the first herald of the gospel, John the Baptist. Advent gets all of us pregnant. In Luke chapter 1, in the passage immediately preceding tonight's gospel reading, the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to be the mother of the Son of God. And Mary understandably responds, how's that going to happen? Like, how am I going to be anybody's mom? I'm a virgin. And Gabriel replies, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. But to a great extent, what Gabriel says of Mary in that moment describes what happens to every believer in the waters of baptism. For Christians, the baptismal font is a womb overshadowed by the Holy Spirit like Mary's womb is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. For Christians, the baptismal waters are a womb out of which we are born, not just of flesh or by the will of man, but by the Holy Spirit. When we're plunged into into the waters of our baptism, our merely human life dies. And when we rise from the surface of those waters, we are born again. We begin to be alive with a life that isn't just our life, but the life of the very Son of God. We have Jesus in us. 
We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Advent gets all of us pregnant. All of us Christians are like these pregnant ladies in Luke chapter 1. So let me ask again, do we hear one another's voices the way that they hear each other's voices? Do our voices sound like the voices in our Advent readings tonight? Do we cherish the sound of one another's voices the way that Elizabeth and Mary cherish one another? Think specifically for a second about that question. Think about the voices of the people that are in this room. I'm tempted to ask some specific people about some other specific people in this room, but I'm not going to. Just, just go through a list of names like, and be like, do you cherish so-and-so's voice? Or do you, you know, instinctively roll your eyes or try to find some place to hide when you hear that person's voice? Do you hear in one another's voices what Elizabeth hears when she hears Mary? What about your own voice? What about the sound of your own voice? How do other people hear the sound of our voice? Do you guard your speech in ways that recognize the power and the potential of your words? Are we watchful over what we say to make sure our voice is a blessing to our sisters and brothers rather than a curse? I'll go first in answering that question by confessing that all too often, whether through recklessness or anger or pride or self-righteousness or some combination of all of the above, all too often my own voice has damaged the body of Christ rather than blessing it and building it up. In fact, sometimes I've damaged the body of Christ with my voice, even while being motivated by the very best of intentions. After all, it's not as if pastors or Christians are only allowed to say the things that other people want to hear. We're called to speak truthfully to one another, to challenge and even confront and correct one another. To be sure, I want to go on record that guarding our speech, aspiring for, for our voice to be a voice of blessing, does not mean just being nice. If we reduce this teaching to that, we'll end up being liars and perhaps worse, we'll become even more boring than we already are. Nonetheless, though, the older I get, the more I'm slowly learning that there's a difference between truthfulness and accusation. I know I'm called to the former, but I think I'm mostly forbidden from the latter. More often than I wish, I think my voice has sounded to my brothers and sisters like the voice of the accuser rather than like the voice of Jesus. What does your voice sound like in your sister's and brother's ears? For that matter, what does your own voice sound like in your ears? How do you speak to yourself? Whether out loud or just in the silence and the privacy of your own head, what do you say to yourself? Having kids has made me aware of habits of speech in my life that I thought were normal, but I've started to realize are actually harmful. Like just seemingly casual ways of being like, oh, I'm, a, I'm such an idiot. Like, why did I do that that way? If I mess up about something or just like being really like hard on myself about something. But then when I hear my kids speaking to themselves that way, when they fail at something that is normal to fail at, 
or when they make a mistake that is something for which they need to ask forgiveness, saying things like, I'm the worst, I'm a bad kid. I'm like, where did they learn that from, you know? And I realize that something that can seem so normal actually is, is a kind of mercilessness. And it's a way that we speak into our own ears the words of the accuser. And so I find myself saying to my kids and more and more saying to myself, like, don't talk to yourself that way. Because that, that is distorting the truth about you. That there's something more true and more real about you than these accusations. If at times, despite myself, I've been the accuser of my brothers and sisters with far greater frequency and far more explicitly, what I hear me saying to me is the voice of the accuser. I suspect that some of you in this room, that's probably true for you too. Over against the voice of accusation, tonight God speaks to us in these passages of scripture and he's telling us something we desperately need to hear and that we're all too likely to forget. He's telling us that in the coming of his son, that the dragon has been defeated, that the liar has been overthrown. Salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser who once accused us day and night before God has been thrown down. And if Jesus coming really means that we now stand unaccused before God in heaven, why should we listen to Satan's lies on earth? If we're unaccused before God in heaven, why live as though we're accused before men on earth? If God is for us, who can be against us? If it's God who justifies, who can condemn us? Certainly not that old snake, according to these readings. But the truth is that so much of what we see and hear in this world doesn't make it seem, doesn't make it obvious that Satan has been defeated. And while we're being honest, there's more than enough sin and failing in all our lives to keep any accuser occupied which is one of the reasons why it's so important that we go like Mary with haste to the hill country. It's one of the reasons why it's important that we come decisively together up to this altar where we have a chance to see and to hear the truth about us. We come with haste to this table because Jesus coming means that our bodies and our voices, our persons, and our gatherings, that in our presence and our attention to God and to one another, that we bring one another into the very presence of the Messiah. There's so much more going on here in what we say and see and hear and eat. So much more than just some people standing in a circle, singing some songs and passing around a mediocre snack. What's going on here is nothing less than the victory of Christ. Here, our earthly celebration touches upon and joins the company of heaven. Tonight, the sound of our voices heralds the arrival of salvation on earth and the unleashing of the power of God's kingdom. Here, in the name of Jesus, we announce to one another the good news that God has forgiven us that the accuser of our sisters and brothers who accused us day and night before God has been thrown down. Amen.